Hey everybody, welcome to Mossback, the official podcast of the Mossback's Northwest video series from KCTS9 and Crosscut. I'm Stephen Haig. And I'm Knute Berger. And today, we're talking about the photography of Aishul Curtis and the massive project to digitize some 55,000 of his photographs in order to preserve his chronicling of the Pacific Northwest for nearly 50 years. If you haven't already seen the video, take a few moments to watch it and then rejoin us here. You can find it on the show notes or on crosscut.com. But for now, let's develop this picture a little more, shall we? Knut, you and I have talked a lot about Aishul Curtis and have done a video on him and his brother Edward, both photographers. Remind us why Aishul's work is so important and what this digitization project is all about. So Aishul Curtis was the famed photographer, Edward Curtis's younger brother, and they followed very different paths as photographers. Aishul was an incredibly prolific, avid commercial photographer, newspaper photographer, real estate photographer, promotional photographer, advertising photographer. I mean, he took pictures of just about everything, and his career spanned from the 1890s and the Alaskan Gold Rush period all the way to the early 1940s. So you get you know, pictures of sourdough's gold panning, but you also get pictures of airplanes. And I think that that 50 years in our history was obviously extremely significant. You know, he, he took pictures that documented the kind of growth of the Pacific Northwest. I mean, he was doing outdoor photography. He was a mountain climber. He was going up Mount Rainier multiple times, taking pictures of people that were doing that kind of thing. He was also taking pictures of shipyards and shipyard workers and macaw tribal uh, whale hunters in action. Um, you know, his, his photographs, while some of them were very beautiful and scenic, sort of postcard, brochure kinds of things. A lot of them just showed what people were actually doing on a day-to-day basis. And in that way, it's, it's just a valuable picture of um, a half century in our, in our history, which is a big chunk of our, um, you know, post-settlement history. And in contrast, of course, Edward concentrated on this, his own huge project, Obsession, the North American Indian, because he thought... Native tribes were going to vanish, and he spent his life with these uh, incredible portraits of natives, uh, sometimes not uh, photographed realistically, but romantically, as he thought they would look like before European conquest. Yeah, I mean, I think Edward was looking backward in, in an artistic way, his Pictures are both controversial and celebrated today for what they portray. I don't think there's any question that (laughs) Aishul Curtis was in the here and now. And he was in the here and now, not only kind of, you know, trying trying to cover everything, but it was also a period of action. It was the future. It was the building. And he was a tireless promoter of building and development and expansion, roads, 
um, forestry, logging, all of that. Tell us more about the, the project to digitize all of these images and in what state are the images now? Yeah, that's a really good question. So when Aishel Curtis died in 1941, shortly thereafter, the Washington State Historical Society was able to purchase his entire collection, all of his work, his studio's work. And this included you know, the negatives. Also, he had an inventory of what he had shot. And, you know, it was an organized collection that the society did a lot to organize it. So what they have are, you know, some 55 to 60,000 images, about 5,000 have already been digitized and made available to the public on their website. But this bulk of them have not been. And in the past, the way to see those images um, would be to go down to their archives, would be to look at the inventory, see if you could find a topic that was interesting or a date, have, a, have an archivist go find the photo. You know, it was a ponderous, uh, fairly tedious process. But, you know, people have been doing that over the years. I think the sense is now there are two things driving this. One is that the negatives or the, the images are, are the originals, right? So for the first part of the 20th century, they were still using large format glass negatives, glass plate negatives. These things have emulsion on them that deteriorates over time. So the only way to keep them safe is to put them basically in a deep freezer. <laughs> so they're kept in a special room. They're organized as the collection was organized by, uh, by Curtis. Then the latter part are, are on nitrate negatives, which are highly flammable. And they also deteriorate or can deteriorate over time. So those are also kept in the freezer at special temperatures to keep them stable. And so the way to see these images is the best way is you can't really uh, print them anymore in that form. But what you can do is you can scan them. And that's valuable for all kinds of reasons. One is uh, the main reason, I think, is that scanning these images will allow the Historical Society to make all 55,000 available to the public. So you'll be able to go on a special website. This is maybe a year or two down the road. You'll be able to go to a special website with all the Curtis photos and look them up to your heart's content. The other thing is that, particularly the, with the glass plate negatives, they are very high resolution, right? So uh, they're, they're made for a computer be, and digitization because once you digitize them, you have very high resolution images where you can see detail that's simply not available in an eight by 10 print or something equivalent to that. So what will happen is people will spot things they didn't see before in images that may have been published, but you couldn't look at them closely. Many of these images, which have really not been seen by the general public um, to any great extent, and some of them not at all, it's like having the contact sheets. It's like the outtakes, the the pictures that he took that weren't necessarily his prime objective um, that show you something 
of significance. So I think from the standpoint of the public and historians in general, I think it's a treasure trove. I mean, it's just it it's just going to be a treasure trove because we're going to be seeing images that haven't been um, noted previously. So where are these photographs currently held at the Washington State Historical Society? Yes, they have a in the they have an um, archive building in Tacoma. It's near Stadium High School. If people have seen uh, that in in Hollywood films and and that kind of thing, yeah, that's where the collection is kept. They have a couple of people who come in. Uh, daily, and they have one person who scans the nitrate negatives and another person who scans the glass plates. They kind of know what they're doing. And of course, as they go through this process, they're able to confirm the content of the photos. They're able to recover often minimal but important caption information, like the date it was shot. Um, some images will actually have information on the image itself. Others, um, there are note cards and things that may have additional details. So they're going to know more about the images. They're going to have better scans of the images. And some of these images, they're going to be able to save, you know, before further deterioration. Regionally, have there been other digitization efforts like this on a scale like this? You know, this is the largest one that I've heard about. But certainly more institutions are doing more of this. The Seattle Public Library, the University of Washington Library, Washington State University Library, uh, many even smaller museums are trying to digitize the collections. And I think there's always um, a question about... If you digitize everything, then will the actual physical things no longer be important or necessary? And I, I certainly, I'm a big believer in digitization, but I'm also a big believer in you got to keep the three-dimensional and the and the physical objects because you can learn a whole lot from them that you're not going to get through digitization. A great example is at the Seattle Room and the Public Library. You can look up photos online and get the digital information, but you can go down there and they have these old card catalogs with news clippings and librarians' notes on the back, handwritten on the back of the cards that offer other clues or references to other materials. So the physical stuff is still really important, but I think digitization, and if anything has proved the need for it, it was the pandemic. People couldn't go. The archives closed. Um, you know, the King County archives, you know, was shut down. And so you had a period of time where research could only really be done remotely. Did you use any of these photographs in your previous work, uh, research about Curtis, for instance? Yeah, well, one of the things that we're doing as part of this project is we're getting sort of sneak previews of some of the images that are emerging. And then we're researching, I'm researching those images to see what the story is. What What is this image about? What is it telling us? One image they flagged for me early on was from a mine in Roslyn. And, any you know, if you know about the history of Roslyn, there was... 
like the coal mines of the Cascades, um, there was a lot of racial strife, union strife. Black workers were brought in as stripe breakers, and then but then they also settled in Rosalind, which had you know this incredibly diverse population. Well, one of the early pictures that they came up with was the only known picture showing a black miner mining. <laughs> you know, so here was this known African American community, and you could see photographs of people you know, dressed up for a family portrait or something, but actually showing black workers in the mine, that just didn't exist. Well, they found one. So it adds a different, a different element to these stories to begin to show that there's some way to visually represent diversity and controversy and, and whatnot that we didn't have before. Well, we're having this conversation at a time when technology like AI, the emergence of AI, changes the very idea of what a photograph is and how a photo is used. Yeah, very true. I mean, you can tap instructions into an AI program and it will create a, a unique image for you. And that image is probably drawing on other images that it finds and the way it correlates your your needs. But it's not necessarily something that reflects reality. It can just simply reflect whatever criteria you throw in there. So why, why is the digitization of Aishel's work so important at this time? Well, this was a comment that was made by Jennifer Kilmer, who's the director of the Washington State Historical Society. And she, she said she believed that because of AI, getting these photographs digitized and released to the public was very important. And with AI, you know, it's all about what you do with the image. I mean, in other words, these images are going to go out there. And I'm sure people will start, you know, manipulating them and doing other things just as they would with uh, images from any source. But the advantage is that they come with a pedigree. They come with a, a provenance. You, we know about the, the, the history and career of Aishel Curtis. He's you know, had biography written about him, and, and you know, we know a lot about how he photographed, what he photographed, why he photographed. So you'll have genuine historic images that you can, you, you can count on their authenticity. Now, you can't always count on what they show. That often requires research. It requires um, uh, knowing other parts of history to put the picture in context. But I think getting more reality out there <laughs> and um, having people have more access to that is a really important advantage at this time. Are we saying that Aishel Curtis's photographs always portrayed reality? Well, that, you know, that's a question about any photograph, isn't it? Times have changed since Aishel Curtis. I found one photograph that I really liked, which was a picture of a bunch of people standing in a, basically a gazebo at Alki in about 1912. And 
they're wearing the beach costumes and dressed, they're dressed up and, and they look like people right out of an impressionist painting. And Ishel Curtis took a big, you know, got, brought his big camera up there and took a picture of them from the back. So you're, you're basically, you're, you're with these people looking at what they're looking at and you see them from behind. There's one guy in the photo who's looking over his shoulder with kind of a look of alarm when he notices that there's a guy behind him with a camera. It's the kind of photograph that you would take with your phone, right? But in those days, nobody had those phones. Nobody had, you know, an iPhone and could pull out a picture and take, you know. But Curtis took a picture that you would not, you know, ordinarily see. And so I think, you know, the context is, you know, one where the proliferation of photography has sort of changed the way we look at things. It's changed the, the postures, you know, that, that, that we take. So any decision that a photographer makes is essentially an editorial decision. So as a historian and writer, do you trust any photograph that you see? What questions do you ask when you see something that looks very interesting or provocative? Well, there's always the too-good-to-be-true test, you know, which is um, one of the things people are having is having AI make fake historic pictures. And uh, one that has been making the rounds shows, uh, you know, a group of late 19th century men standing there as if they're standing by a giant tree stump and there's a but there's a huge horse you know like a two-story high or three-story high horse standing with them uh, you know people create these things and circulate them um, as kind of internet fodder you know to get people to click or comment or or whatever um, I think the source is really important. I mean, I always look for where did the picture come from? Did it come from a university library? Um, those things have probably been vetted to some degree by the archivists and scholars there. Is the picture of something that just makes your jaw drop because it's so weird? Well, then, then you start to question it, you know. You know, sometimes you can get a definitive answer and sometimes you can't. Certainly... Ever since photography existed, there have been ways of making images that are theater. Studio pictures with curtains and drapes and painted backdrops. You know, you see Civil War pictures that have been carefully hand-tinted by the photographer. Um, are those colors genuine? Or You see a lot of that happening now, too, to historic photos and movies. The colorization of film. Even Aschel created a, a postcard of how incredible the fruit was from the Columbia Basin, a, a photograph of two men carrying a bunch of grapes. The grapes are the size of bowling balls, and it takes two of them to carry this cluster <laughs> of grapes on a, on a pole. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, there is a long tradition of those images and postcards, you know, showing the giant oranges or beets on a rail car as a as a sales promotion. And most people, they're in on the joke, right? right. They right. they get that it's a, you know, a humorous thing. 
pictures have been used for all kinds of things, propaganda, and people have been, you know, Stalin famously erasing his aides from pictures. I mean, as long as pictures have been around, people have been tinkering. And, and the real question is, given the Internet, can this happen and is happening on a scale that sort of makes everything suspect? You know, that is the environment that I think everybody dreads is you can't believe anything. And, of course, there's some people who are, you know, conspiracy theorists and others who you know, are already in that camp. You can't believe anything. But I think that's, again, why it's important that respected institutions, media institutions, uh, collections, archives, libraries, museums, historical societies – if they weigh in and participate, um, yes, there will be people who will misuse what they do, but there's also accountability. There's accountability as to where the original images came from, what the original images are thought to have um, portrayed. Um, and I think that's a really important thing, that, that the more accountability and provenance you have, the better chance you have of determining whether this is something true or not. In a broad sense, what do you think will come out of the release of this collection and the very many images of the Pacific Northwest that it shows? I think it'll hit people at a lot of different levels. So I think local historians will find detail about what was happening in, in their town. You know, what I'm, what I'm thinking there is, you know, pictures that he has of of putting in the water system in Pasco when it was just a desert. And you you see how the this small town with a dirt street, and it looks like a Western town, you know, its origins or its, its youth. So I think local historians are going to find a lot of great detail that will, will fill in pictures for them, literally pictures. I think there's sort of a bigger thing that I'm really interested in, which is that because access to these pictures has pretty much been limited to scholars and and people with these very specific interests looking for documentation, our history has been very incomplete. You know, Northwest history has largely been written with a very narrow view of what's important. And I think one of the things that has impressed me in some of the early looks that I've got at, gotten at the Curtis photographs is his photographs of black businessmen, his photographs of uh, Japanese diplomats, his photographs of Native people in itinerant camps, maybe headed to the hop fields or or the, the whalers at Nia Bay. Um, you know, you come away from it with this greater sense that we need to have scholarship that is able to dig out this material or get access to it so that we can begin, you know, looking for new narratives and looking for uh, support.
What is the timeline of the digitization process? Well, I haven't actually sat down with my calculator, but if they're doing, if they're able to digitize, you know, maybe a hundred images a day, and your goal is fifty-five thousand, you know, you're you're talking a couple of years. They are uh, raising money to help with the project to fund it, so they'll be able to speed it up, and then they also are are you know, going to build a website that will really make the access easy for people. And um, so they're working on that. They're planning an exhibition as well. Uh, we're planning a documentary, working on that about the project. So, you know, I we're hoping we're hoping we could have our documentary done by next summer, but we'll see we'll see how it goes. But the progress right now is very steady. Do you feel any sort of personal connection to Aishel Curtis as you go through this collection? You know, I had a remote connection with him because a man who did some photographic uh, processing work for my father at his, our home dark room uh, had worked for Curtis. And I met him. And he told me about you know, the early days of photography back then. He had worked at the Alaska Yukon Pacific Exposition. And then he, the one anecdote I remember was he was sent by Curtis, I think, this, to do some photographs on Bainbridge Island. And he was just stumbling around in the woods <laughs> trying to find a place to shoot it. It was such dense forest, you know. And my father was a professional photographer, among other things, and my sister was a, kind of picked up that mantle and was a professional medical photographer for many years. So I feel like I've been around the various technologies of, of cameras, and, and, you know, I used to do work in my dad's dark room for him. I can still smell the chemicals. <laughs> And uh, I also, my grandfather went to, you know, was in the Alaskan gold rush and had a camera, glass plate. We have all his glass plate negatives and photo albums. So I, that's one reason I can appreciate Aishel being, lugging that stuff, you know, in the snow and ice and freezing cold and, and bringing back, um, you know, great images it's also hard not to feel connected when you see photographs of places that you're very familiar with, but as they used to be. There's a photograph I've seen that no, I don't think anybody else would really care about it, but it was taken on North Capitol Hill looking down toward what's now the Arboretum. And you see this kind of um, early 20th century neighborhood and there are no tall trees. There's nothing blocking the view. It just kind of sweeps down. And it's a view that you see from sort of the, you know, where 23rd and becomes 24th on Capitol Hill there. It's kind of right there. You, it's, it's a view looking out. And it was, a, it was a, an orientation that I'd never seen of Seattle before. You know, so and then it took me a while to figure out, oh, here's where he's standing and here's here's what he's shooting. And I think when you see pictures of what a place that's right near where you live and you get to see what it looked like way back when 
and it's just normal houses. There's nothing exotic in this picture. It just does make you feel connected. It makes it it speaks to you and your experience. Well, let's be frank. A lot of his pictures, it's not like they're all interesting, right? Some of them are very mundane. Some of them are very. I'm going to shoot a picture of a man emptying a a um, wheelbarrow, you know. I mean, but the mundaneness of that, of some of those pictures, the ordinariness, the the fact that they weren't exotic gives them a lot of power in a place that changes so rapidly. You know, I've had people say to me, you know, I moved here in 2000, in 2010, and I barely recognize the place. There's some way these pictures for, for some people in some places is going to provide a kind of touchstone and you, you feel a connection. You know, this guy was standing here and captured this moment. And he documented the ferocious pace of change in Seattle and the Northwest that we think we're experiencing now in the last 20 or 30 years. Yeah. Imagine between 1890 and 1941, the changes that he experienced. And they were extraordinary, and he was there for it. Thanks for listening to Mossback. If you'd like to see all the episodes from this season of Mossback's Northwest, you can find them at crosscut.com or kcts9.org. The video series is now in its eighth season. A new episode airs on Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9, every Thursday night through November. This episode of the Mossback podcast was produced by Seth Halloran, and the story editors were Sarah Bernard and Sarah Menzies. Our executive producer is Sarah Menzies. You can subscribe to the Mossback Podcast wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We'd love to know what you think of the show. And check out the show notes if you want to get in touch or learn more about each topic we cover. Also, if you'd like to support the work we do at Crosscut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the video docuseries we stream every week, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of KCTS 9. And being a member means you can sign up for an exclusive weekly Mossback newsletter from Knut Berger, where he offers greater insight into his latest historical discoveries. Mossback is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Stephen Haig. We'll be back soon with another episode. Mm-hmm.